I don't know if you have favorite parts of the worship service. For many of you, it's probably when we're done is, is what your favorite part is. But I have three distinct favorite aspects of our worship. The first is, and I've told you this several times, the word of pardon after the confession of sin. That, that to me is just the most glorious aspect of our worship. And then second, any acapella congregational singing we do. When, when Dan or Nancy just leave off and let the congregation go, sending our harmony junkies, and we have so many people in this congregation who actually can sing parts. Sandy and I kind of, we can listen parts, we can't really sing parts that well, but that to me is glorious. And then the benediction of the evening service. And what I want to do this week and then for the following three weeks, for four weeks, Pastor Dodds and I are going to be looking at the benedictions the final word of blessing in, in worship. Now, I want to spend some time this morning doing two things. One is explaining how the regulative principle or our view of worship informs what we do for benedictions. And then second, I want us to examine in some depth, not great depth, Numbers chapter 6, which is the original benediction. This is the, the prototype for all other benedictions. And so let me remind you why we do what we do in worship. If you have your hymnal in front of you, and you do, turn to page 932, and this is our public theology. This is our confession of faith, and this informs everything we do in worship. I always have to really, and maybe I've done this with you, I really have to suppress a smirk. Typically, when people walk in for the first time and they say, have you ever thought about doing this in worship? It would be really cool. I saw a church do this, and we always have to say, uh, there's a lot, and everything we do is, is deeply considered. Uh, there's nothing that happens by accident. Never does it happen that Pastor Dodds walks in and says, on Friday and says, hey, Carl, this would be cool to do on Saturday morning, that, on Sunday. That just never would happen. And so we have what is known in, in historical theology as the regulative principle. And look, at, look on page 932 at um, section 21 on worship. And notice what we read there in 21.1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God. What's the inference there? That there are plenty of unacceptable ways. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself. And so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to to the imaginations and devices of men. Now, we're going to spend some time on that in just a moment because there are some of you who think, Carl, I, if somebody asks me, why do we do a benediction? Why do we preach? Why do we sing psalms in? I don't know. It's probably because that's what Carl likes. No. Look at our statement there in 21.1. And by the way, every elder, every deacon, every pastor here has subscribed to this, said, I'll take a bullet for these principles. I'll get run over by a car on Woodruff Road if need be, because this is who we are. So notice what it says is that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestion of Satan or under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now, when you look at that statement in 21.1, it's obvious there is an acceptable way of worshiping God, and there are plenty of unacceptable ways. 
The acceptable way is limited by his revealed will, meaning the scriptures. And God may not be worshipped by, look at all the things that we read there, the imaginations and devices of men. In other words, we've codified that we may not make up worship out of our own minds. I'm going to spend time in just a moment on why. The second, we may not worship according to the suggestion of Satan. Our Reformed forebears here in the 1640s would say and did say that much of worship innovation is demonic. And we would read, by any visible representation, one of the things that our culture keeps on falling down as is they would say that faith comes by seeing. And notice what our confession says. This is who we are as Presbyterian and Reformed folks for 380 years. That we will not worship under any visible representation. Our culture keeps blowing this point. Faith comes by hearing, not by seeing. And so our worship is to be driven to the ear, to the hearing, not to sight. And then notice as well, in any other ways not prescribed in Holy Scripture. Now notice that crucial word, I hope you're looking at 21.1, in that last sentence is the term prescribed. Our confession, what, we, what all our elders and deacons and ministers subscribe to, this, these are the fences and the parameters of our confession. Confession does not say that men are free to utilize any mode of worship unless it's prohibited in Scripture, but expressly says that worship is limited to always being prescribed in Scripture. We will only do what is commanded or warranted or modeled. In his Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin says, it is a fixed principle among the Reformed that all modes of worship devised by men are detestable. Where does this come from? Now, you can shut your hymnal and open your Bible. Look at Leviticus chapter 10, and let me remind you the foundation for this idea. Because what I'm going to get to after I sort of take you down this long road of the regulative principles, we'll look at number six. But I want to convince you that it's a horrible idea for men to make up elements of worship. It's, in fact, it can be deadly. In fact, that's the point of Leviticus 10. Look at Leviticus 10. We read, Nadab and Abihu, and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. This is their own idea. They're on, hey, Nadab, wouldn't it be cool to put some strange fire on the altar? That, that old way of doing it, we've done it for three weeks. That's so tired. Let's do something new. And so look what happens. Fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And so what we see is this, is this is one of the many texts that teaches us that God will not accept worship that comes from the mind of men, worship that he's not commanded. We have all sorts of explicit warnings in Deuteronomy 12 against false worship. We have texts which demand that even the place of worship, the, tab- the tabernacle and the temple, have to be made exactly according to God's plan. And then you have that class of texts which shows believers in the Lord's distress when worship is corrupted. You have Moses whenever the, the golden calf is built. You have Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple saying, no, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then you have God's stated wrath in Jeremiah 7 when men worship, using the language of God here in Jeremiah 7, in ways that have never entered his mind. 
You have Jesus teaching in Mark 7 that men worship in vain when they do so according to the traditions of men. Even in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, this principle is clearly uh, inferred when the apostles and us are taught that we are not to teach obedience to ideas of our own making, but to obey everything I've commanded you. So the summary of the Bible's revelation on worship and what we can do in worship, it's the prerogative of God alone to determine the terms on which sinners may approach him in worship. The introduction of of extra-biblical practices into worship always nullifies and undermines God's appointed worship. When men introduce new elements and practices into worship, they're calling into question the wisdom of God and the sufficiency of Scripture. So why not make worship up out of our own brains? Let me give you a brief list of reasons. Because we're going to come back to this when we look at the idea of the benediction. Everything from the call to worship to the benediction has been directly commanded in Scripture. And we cannot, we cannot omit elements that the Bible commands, nor can we add elements. So why can't we make worship up out of our own brain? I had a, a woman the whole time I was in Oklahoma City, a woman in my congregation, who said, Carl, God has given me gifts of creativity, and God has given me gifts to lead worship. And every week when I'm watching our worship, I can think of three or four extra things we ought to be doing in worship. And you're holding down my gifts of creativity. I said, I I think you're in the wrong church, sister. Well, in terms of why may we not make up worship out of our own brains? First of all, God alone knows what is pleasing to his nature. It is not for us as creatures to prescribe to God, the creator, the means by which he may be blessed by us. I've told the story a thousand times, probably tell it a thousand more, when my dad retired with 40 years with Hartford Insurance. They held a party for him at the Skirvin in downtown Oklahoma City. And my brother and I went, and, and it was going to be a big deal for Dad. Some execs flew down from Hartford, Connecticut to, to give him a gold watch and all this sort of thing. And when we walked in the ballroom, the small ballroom at the Skirvin, over there on the side was a string quartet, pretty laughable knowing Dad. And over here was the table with the food. It was the dreaded chicken salad croissants. And my brother and I, when we looked that way and looked that way, we looked at each other and started laughing. And my brother said, Carl, I don't think they know Dad. And he said, let's sit here and imagine, since we don't know anybody else at this party, let's sit here and entertain ourselves and imagine, what would it be if they actually wanted to honor Dad? I said, well, the music would be Merle Haggard and Buck Owens. And my brother said, and the food would be a plate that deviate from biblical commands in worship. When you look at their worship yourself, Because if you really wanted to honor God, here's what you would do. And it would end each service with a scriptural benediction. Well, a second reason why we can't make worship up out of our own brain. Because of our our propensity to succumb to temptation from the tempter on worship. Chad Van Dixorn writes these words. There is a tempter who is known to direct worship away from God. And when Jesus gave the command to... Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. He was not speaking to disciples or religious leaders, but to Satan. But a leading reason why we don't make worship up out of our own brains is because our own brains are fallen. And we rarely, if ever, take this principle into account. Our minds are fallen. They've been corrupted. There are several aspects of 
the daily intellectual life, even of believers, that can be directly linked to the fall. Think of some of these with me. First of all, ignorance. If there would have been no fall, there would be no ignorance. The things of God, even his invisible attributes, are clearly seen in creation, but the fall has clouded our ability to see these things. Ignorance would have been impossible unto the fall, whereas now it's out of our own brains because we're fallen is distractedness. Every single human being, me at the head of that list, has theological attention deficit disorder. We are easily distracted by, to quote Jeff Foxworth here, shiny stuff. Another reason why we shouldn't make up worship because our minds are fallen is forgetfulness. Most every adult in this room is committed to memory things that you've now forgotten. Forgetfulness would be impossible if we'd not sinned. Also, inconsistencies. Inconsistencies, it would be bad enough if we were merely plagued with inconsistency. The bigger problem is we don't even see them in ourselves when we're inconsistent, although they're readily detected by others. Another aspect of our fallenness of our mind that plagues us and why we shouldn't be making up worship out of our own mind is we fail repeatedly to draw the right conclusion. This is a besetting intellectual sin. Most people don't even recognize they're drawing the wrong conclusions. There's willfulness and blindness towards data. And another reason why we shouldn't be making up worship out of our own minds is intellectual apathy. If we didn't have the effects of the fall on our minds, we would be infinitely passionate about the things that should be of our deep concern. For example, this subject of worship. Right now, you're, you're, you're having a battle intellectually. You're saying, should I actually stay awake or concentrate for the next 25 minutes? Is this worth thinking about? Well, let's think this way. If you actually love the Lord's Day and keep it morning and evening worship 52 weeks a year, that means you will 104 times a year. This year, 106 times. It's 53 Sunday a year. You will, <clears throat> that means that you will be engaged in public corporate worship. Something you'll do 104, 106 times a year for the next 50 years, 5,000 times. The most important aspect that you engage in, you ought to be deeply concerned about every single aspect of worship. Well, because of our fallen minds, we're intellectually apathetic towards the things that we ought to care about most. Do you know what one of my big problems is, and the list is long? I know the batting averages of all the 1976 Dodgers. I know the wrong stuff. And I'm apathetic oftentimes about things that matter deeply, biblical things, things of holiness and of the personal work of Christ. This is one of the most devastating effects of the fall. We have intellectual apathy about the things we should care about. There's another aspect of why we shouldn't be making up worship out of our own minds, and that is vain imagination. Paul in Romans chapter 1 indicts vain imagination showing that we make images out of created things, even birds and animals and, and creeping things. Well, another issue of why we shouldn't be making up worship out of our own minds is because we have partial knowledge. Paul says we know only in part, and sometimes we don't even know how partial our knowledge is. Anthony Hookham of the Dutch Reformed Theologian says, Sin has poisoned the very fountain of life. Therefore, all of life is bound to be affected by it. Sin cuts through every aspect of our being and even has consequences to our cognitive faculties. This is true of Christians as well as non-Christians. 
And so apart from regeneration, men are in bondage to sin. Even the Christian mind is not sequestered from the reality of sin. Our natural tendency inherited from Adam is to seek and love the wrong things or seek and love the right things in an inordinate manner. This is why Paul commands that Christians need to be continually transformed by the renewing of their minds. The renewing of the mind is a common theme in the writings of Paul. Calvin repeatedly insists that our minds and our hearts are factories for the construction of idols. And what all worship innovators fail to reckon with is the profound debilitating effects of depravity on our liturgical sensibilities. And so let me tell you, if you go through a deep study of Scripture, here's what you'll find that God wants in worship. Here's what he wants 52 times a year, on 52 days a year. This year, 53. He wants his people to read and have the Scripture preached to him. Read the Word and preach the Word in worship. He wants the singing of psalms and hymns. He wants prayer. And even the last word, the benediction, as we will see, is commanded, and we have a positive warrant to do so. And so let me remind you, when you sum up what we as Reformed folks believe about worship, it is simple. It has a very few basic elements. It's not hard to master the regular principle. It's simple. It is transferable. You need electricity to worship. And this point is, Terry's done it, I've done it, I preached under a tree in the Dominican Republic, and we had biblical worship. We did the exact same elements that we just did. But if you have to have electricity to run your smoke machine and your amp, you're doing it wrong. And not only is our worship simple and transferable, biblical worship can be done in Africa, it can be done on Woodruff Road, but it's also reverent. We worship this way because it's necessarily theocentric. It's God-centered. It's not unusual to see other churches, including in their worship, things besides these elements. A couple of years ago, the entire PCA was shocked when a video comes out of a PCA congregation a little bit north of here, and three men in very white, tight ballet gear did a ballet performance during the serving of communion. Or we've seen interpretive hip-hop dance groups. We've seen my secretary, who was a charismatic in Oklahoma City, came in to announce that the Lord had given her a word. She was supposed to start a flag team that would perform in worship. And she wanted to know if what I thought about that. So I think it's nuts, and the Lord didn't give you a word to do so. Well, it's, it's no overstatement to say that we're living in an era of worship anarchy. Corporate worship of the Lord's day is presently undergoing history. And so what I want to do is I want to begin to address that by talking about one small element in our worship. You'll notice that it happens 52 mornings a week, 52 evenings a week, that the worship service is closed. This is the last word. And this, by the way, is how you know these are the bookends of worship at Woodruff Road. It begins with a call to worship, and it ends with a benediction. And everything in between must have a biblical warrant. So where do we get the idea that the benediction, you're thinking, the benediction, that's when I'm finding my keys, Carl. That's when I'm, I'm pushing the kids out so that we can get cookies first. Well, let me show you why we say the, even the benediction, something as simple as this, and by the way, there are dozens of benedictions in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. The New Testament ends with a benediction, are, are warranted. 
Look at Numbers chapter 6, and I hope you have your, your Bible open there. And I want us to look at the, the text, and I want you to notice where we get such an idea of a warrant, a command, a pattern for us to include in worship. Number 6, verse 22, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons. Now, who are Aaron and his sons? The priests, those who have charge of the worship of God. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, by the way, it's an imperative, commanded. Here comes the, what's known as the Aaronic, meaning it's from Aaron. Not the, if you hear somebody say it's the ironic benediction. Well, Dan does some of those sometimes, but not me. I stick to the Aaronic benediction. Here it comes. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Now I've got to tell you, I, I love this fragment of scripture that still that we possess. Dates back 2600 years to 600 BC. And it's this, <clears throat> found in a cave in the valley of Hinnom about 40 years ago are the words of number six, the Aaronic benediction. But they are not written on papyrus or animal skins, but on silver amulets. And you can see these words, they're sketched in Hebrew, the exact same words that you have in your Bible. By the way, it's a good argument for the preservation and the transmission of the text of Scripture. Now, to give you some explanation, maybe you don't know this word, benediction. Benediction is a compound word. It comes from the Latin bene, which means good, and diction is to speak. And so a benediction is to speak a good word, a word of blessing. And liturgically, it's a divinely commanded pronouncement of God's blessing on his people. Now again, the benediction is not the time when you reach for a coat, but take time to soak in God's good word. And I would tell you, that I, I dare say, I think the high point of encouragement of the Lord's Day comes every Sunday night at the end of the service when we typically use this benediction that the most encouraging and astounding things are said to you. They are pronounced to you and of you in the ironic benediction. Now it's vital to note, look carefully at number six, the text we were looking at. It's vital to note that this is a benediction for God's people only, and only for them. It's not meant for all. It has no benefit to unbelievers. And notice about this benediction, it was dispensed through the ordained minister, Aaron and his sons. Now, the pronouncement of blessing by the, the priest, by the ordained man, was one of their chief tasks. It's very interesting that in Deuteronomy, God repeatedly tells Moses, oh, by the way, one of the most important things that the priests are to do, not only is to exercise to do sacrifices, but they are to pronounce the blessing upon God's people. For example, in Deuteronomy 10, we <clears throat> hear these words, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord to minister to him, and to bless the people in his name. And that formula is used over and over again. So in this case, look carefully at Deuteronomy, or number 6, verse 22 and 23. When they lifted their hands up, when the priest did, 
to pronounce the blessing or the benediction on God's people. These were hands that had just been engaged in sacrifice. And so I want you to see the visual that God's people did see. They saw their ordained ministers holding up blood-soaked hands and pronouncing the blessing of God upon them. All the blessings which ever come to you and I come on the grounds of the shed blood of our priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is typified in the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to dig in deep to number six now, and I want you to notice some of the key words. Several assertions and affirmations are made, and hopefully, I'm being super hopeful here, that each time, including beginning tonight, when you hear the benediction from number six, your mind is going to start firing on, okay, first of all, what the minister is doing is commanded. It's commanded in number six in other texts. And, and God is pronouncing to me astounding things to me and about me in this benediction. And so let's look at the actual statements of the benediction. It begins, notice where the Lord says to Aaron and his sons, this is the way you bless the children of Israel. Say to them, and so first of all, this is a verbal benediction. The blessing comes in the word. The first is, the Lord bless you. That's how it begins. Now, I want you to notice the intimacy and how two words are jammed right together. The Lord bless you. Now, typically, most people are just selfish enough, me again at the head of that list, if I hear the Lord bless you, oh, me? Oh, this is about me? That's what the benediction is about. Look carefully. Who receives the blessing from the Lord? The Lord bless you. Well, and when we look at Scripture, the New Testament, of course, teaches us all the profound spiritual blessings that the Lord has given to us. He's given us pardon and peace and His love and eternal life and the fruit of the Spirit that's joy and heaven at the end of the journey. But He's not only blessed us with spiritual blessings, He has showered you with temporal blessings, and you must not forget these. These include the measure of health you've been given. Most of us have work to occupy, a home to enjoy, loved ones and friends. It's important that the Lord's blessings doesn't only consist of prosperity, it also consists of adversity. When adversity comes, it's in order to conform you, we are told in Romans 8, to Christ's likeness. That is one of the Lord's great blessings, and the preaching of 1 Peter is going to teach us that. And so the first thing that we're to learn from the benediction, look at the first line, is you are enriched with divine blessing. When the Old Testament priest then, the minister now, stands up and says, the Lord bless you, you should think of all of these blessings, spiritual and temporal and eternal, which the Lord is pouring out upon you. You shouldn't be grumpy when you hear these words. This should immediately give the believer joy. A second thing the benediction states, look carefully. The Lord bless you and keep you. Now notice again the intimacy, how that title of the Lord and you are jammed right together. Who is it who's keeping you? It is the Lord. And what a powerful keeper he is. We are told, great is our Lord and mighty in power. There are some people in this room, I know this because I speak with you, We've talked about this. There are some people who are convinced a big part of the day that they are just about to fall away from grace. 
that if they look at this or say that or go there, that that will be the end of them. And when I speak to folks such as this, I always plead with them and say, look, the Lord can keep you. That's, that's part of the promise of salvation is the Lord not only saves, but he keeps. Well, you're guarded. Look at what our benediction says. The Lord bless you and keep you. You're guarded every moment of every day by God's omnipotent power. So you shouldn't be fearful, anxious, apprehensive. Jesus even praised this in John 17, 12, that the Lord would be our keeper. We'll see in 1 Peter 1 in a couple of weeks that the Lord is ready and able to keep us from sin and from falling away. Jude 24 says he's able to keep you from falling. He's able to keep you safely until the end of the journey. But there's more. Notice what the rest of our benediction says in verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And in verse 26, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Now, once you notice the intimacy, once again, it's the Lord, you. And it's this direct action. And this part of the benediction means, look carefully at these words. The Lord makes his face to shine upon you, lifts up his countenance upon you. This is saying, you believer, you have the smile of God upon your life. God is not frowning or looking angrily at you. He is showing his favor. Look carefully. The benediction is last word. Don't go out and think, I, I don't know. Is God angry at me or not? Does he love me? Love me not. This is meant to be the last thing you hear. The Lord is smiling upon you. You're his beloved child. There's more. And this is where this really gets to the, the glories, the freeness of this benediction. Look at verse 25. Now, for those of you who grew up in a dispensational background and you think, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament. New Testament is filled with grace. God of, uh, in the Old Testament, there's nothing about grace. Look at what Israelites heard every week of their life in the priestly benediction. Look what you hear every week of your life. The last word you get is grace. Look at verse 25. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. If you're one of those people who struggles with basic concepts, let me explain what grace is. Grace is free favor on the house, gratis, a gift. Grace is unwarranted, unmerited, unearned. There's no such thing as being deserving of grace. No one is deserving of grace. Gracely is purely a matter of charity and welfare. Grace is the free gift of God to those who have no good in them and cannot repay. Grace is shown not only to those who have no merit, but those who are filled with demerit. Grace isn't bestowed upon the ill-deserving, but upon the hell-deserving. Grace isn't just a hand up. Grace is being picked up and carried about. There's nothing the sinner can do to cause God to regard him favorably. Nothing the sinner can do to win his love. The grace of God is given to those whose condition is so desperate God could just as easily leave them to perish. Grace is God's provision for sinners who are so depraved they can't change their own nature. So averse to God they won't turn to Him. So blind they can't even see their own predicament. So dead spiritually that Christ must give them new life. Grace is the sinner's only hope. If they're not saved by grace, they won't be saved at all. One of the old evangelical acronyms is GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, stands for 
God's riches at Christ's expense. Every religion, of course, has a pathway for salvation. Meditation, prayer to Allah five times a day, pilgrimages, giving to charity, knocking on doors, engaging in elaborate rituals, and purchasing secret and esoteric knowledge. But the Bible is clear. Men are saved by grace. All of God's work, none of our own. The conception, continuance, consummation of salvation is all because of God's grace. So let's think a tiny bit more of this. We think of God's grace, that salvation is all of grace. Were you the one who sent Jesus into the world? No, that was the Father. Did you place him under the law? No, that was the Father. Did you lay your sins upon him at the cross? No, that was the Father. Did you send for men to preach the message of redemption to yourself? No, that was God. Did you change your heart of stone into a heart of flesh? No, that was the Holy Spirit. Grace is God doing everything to redeem sinners from first to last. For God to show grace to you, he had to come and find you, according to John 6, because you were running in the opposite direction. He initiated the whole process. If it would have been up to you, you never would have come to him. But he searched for you and irresistibly drew you to himself. If you believe, it's because God has given you the gift of saving faith. If you chose Christ, it's because he first chose you. If you love Christ, it's because he first loved you. All the blessings are free to us, but they cost our Father a wrenching separation from his only Son. Grace is free, but it's not cheap. For God to show grace, he had to stoop down. The Creator had to come down to the creature's level. We're by nature social climbers, but not the second person of the Godhead. He came all the way down and took flesh full of grace. In just a moment, we're going to sing one of the great hymns of Christendom. It's 250 years old. Come thou fount of every blessing. And we'll all sing, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. It's only when I understand something of my profound depravity and unworthiness and the greatness of God's grace that I can sing these words. And so look at verse 25. Every time you hear these words in a benediction, stop, put your code and your keys down, and let those words, those words of sola gratia, wash over you when you hear this 34, 3,500-year-old benediction. Remember, the Lord is reminding you that everything you have is all of grace. When he says, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. That's all you have is God's grace. Well, notice as well how the benediction ends. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. There's more than grace. There's grace and peace. Huh, isn't that interesting? How does Paul begin almost every one of his epistles? Grace and peace. So notice we're told <clears throat> the last words. And I want to speak particularly to those of you who struggle with anxiety and fear and worry, and everything but peace. God has means to address this, but they're the ordinary means of grace. Look at what you should do at the end of every worship service when you hear this benediction. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Do you know what this says to the anxious, 
to the worry, the fearful, you should say, oh, that's right. The Lord has made provision for peace. So that I'm to know it. In fact, think about the Lord's words to his church when he is risen in Luke chapter 24. Do you remember what the first thing he says to believers is? Peace be upon you. The first thing he did to his disciples who found him was to give them the blessing of peace be unto you. According to the parallel in John chapter 20, Jesus repeated this blessing several times. Peace be upon you. Well, because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, men can now have Peace with God, we're told in Romans 5. And we can enjoy the peace of God, according to Philippians 4. And this is not out of step with our Lord's whole ministry. Do you remember what was announced when Jesus came to the shepherds in the fields in Luke 2? Peace on earth was announced at the birth of Jesus. This is the same Jesus who taught men in the Sermon on the Mount to be peacemakers and how to restore that peace in Matthew 18 once it had been broken to the woman who came and washed Jesus' feet with her tears and then anointed them with expensive perfume and dried them with their hair, Jesus said to her, even though this woman was a notorious sinner, go in peace. To the woman who'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years, who touched the hem of his garment after he healed her, Jesus said, go in peace. Where would he get such an idea? He's thinking of the ironic benediction. This is how, this is how somebody's turning to leave. You say to them, Grace and peace. Well, even on that awful Monday, Thursday night, Jesus' great concern was to give peace to his disciples. So he said to them in the upper room in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. And again, he says in John 14, My peace I leave with you. What makes this word of Jesus so marvelous is to whom it's said. Peace is pronounced to this group of disciples. Jesus is placing the benediction upon them. Peace is pronounced to disciples who um, were going to forsake their master and flee, break their promises and forget their professions of readiness to die for Jesus. Yet not a word of rebuke comes from Jesus' lips. It's his glory to show mercy. He's far more ready to forgive than men are to repent. Though men's sins are scarlet, he's always ready to make them white as snow, to cast them behind his back. So what I want you to hear carefully, when you look at Numbers 6, 26, the last word, and this is intentional in our worship service, and it's been this way for 3,600 years. The last words that God's people hear are, remember grace, that everything you have is free from the hand of God, and go in peace. Perhaps you're saying, Carl, I have reason to be troubled and anxious and worried. My finances are in the tank. I need work. My health is bad. My family life's a mess. But what God is saying to you in the benediction, the ordinary means of grace, God is saying, all these things, I'm working them together for your good. Be at peace. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. And let me point out as well what occurs and should occur every Lord's Day is this bringing of peace to disturbed and troubled souls. Do you know somebody who's anxious and you're thinking, oh, what I need to do is I, I really just need to make an appointment to get them into Dan Dodd's office. I know Dan has some kind of magic formula. Do you know what the best thing you have to give them is? The benediction. The word of peace. 
What is going to have more impact on somebody who's troubled and anxious than the word of God? Prescriptions won't give you peace. Possessions won't give you peace. Preferences, having things go your way, will not give you peace. Only the word of God can bring peace. And what is it that God wants to communicate to you every Sunday? Peace. And so each week after the confession of sins, the Lord speaks peace to us by the word of pardon. When he says, I have washed you clean. I have paid for that sin. We are right with each other through my shed blood. And at the close of the service, Christ is saying to you, the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Well, look back. There's one other thing we can glean from this benediction. Look at number 627. In the benediction, notice what the Lord says to Moses, to Aaron, and the priesthood. This is when God puts his name on his people. Notice what we read in verse 27. So, in other words, by pronouncing the benediction, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. Have you noticed that God tells Aaron, here's, Aaron, here's, how, you, here's how you identify my people by pronouncing the benediction over them. The way that God is going to mark his people, note it carefully in verse 27, is with a verbal blessing. Not with a tattoo or a brand, not with a bond, but with a blessing. That's going to be his mark of ownership. How do you know these are my people? Because, look at verse 27, I put my name on them and my blessing on them. That's how you're going to know they're my people, by my words spoken by my ordained men. Now, notice carefully that not only is a benediction commanded, but only an ordained man may say this. That we're told in verse 23, that's why when you'll see an, an ordination here, when you'll see, like our brother Mark Kuo, <clears throat> after he finished seminary, was examined by the presbytery, and ordained after men had laid hands on him, that's why it's such a big deal. If you saw Mark when he stood up at the close of the service, his first act as an ordained man was to get to say the benediction. But if you noticed, his hands were a little shaky because this is a powerful thing to be the, the, the conduit of God's blessing upon his people. Well, the ironic benediction, of course, foreshadows the divine blessing being pronounced by the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember the last picture we have of Jesus in the ascension? We read in Luke 24 that Jesus lifts up his hands upon his disciples. And we're told that he led them as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. What words do you think he used? He's the words of Numbers chapter 6, the ironic benediction. And Jesus ascended there to heaven as our great high priest to continue the work of intercession on our behalf in the presence of God. Well, this is why we have a benediction. It's commanded, and we have glorious, rich truths being co communicated in them. So tonight, when you this, after the preaching of the word, and you hear the benediction, this again isn't the time to, to grab your coat and your keys. This is the time to be reminded of God's grace and peace and his smile upon you. Let's pray together. Our Father, how we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fullness and the richness of it, Lord. We pray that we would be found mining the truths out of your word. 
Lord, we do pray that we would begin to know in some small sense what is the greatness, what is the length and depth and height and breadth of your love you have for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.